Well, let's turn back again to the gospel according to Matthew for the last time in this series to chapter 2. And uh, before we expound that together, let me read on to the end of this part of the story. It contains the uh, horrible event to which I alluded this morning, uh, the uh, slaughter of, um, I think most people believe, probably 20, 24 uh, children, much exaggerated, of course, in uh, historical tradition, uh, but no less awful for that. It, uh, I was thinking just the other day that our Lord Jesus never met an exact male contemporary from the town of Bethlehem, never once. Um, and it's a fearful story. But um, Matthew then skips 30 years. So I think at least we should get to the end of the first section. So from verse 13, now when the wise men had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah is envisaging the, the people of God about to be taken into Babylon and uh, he thinks of Rachel, who you remember died in childbirth with Benjamin, weeping for her children. And he sees that as a picture of the terrible event of the exile, the destruction of God's people in Babylon. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus, one of Herod's sons, when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called 
a Nazarene. Well, this is the seventh of our studies in these first two chapters of Matthew, and I think probably unusually for most of us, and on reflection, I think completely uniquely for me, we have followed this series through morning and afternoon, and I recognize that that has probably meant that uh, there are gaps in people's hearing in this series, but at the same time, I, I hope that each message has had its own flavor. But if you have been able to track through all of these studies in which we've been looking at these first two chapters, you'll realize that there's actually more in these chapters than we've been able to bring out uh, even in six and now in seven studies. Because this little section of the gospel, uh, focusing entirely on the birth of our Lord Jesus, is in a sense like a little gospel within the gospel. In Matthew's gospel, uh, we meet many different people responding to the Lord Jesus in many different ways. And it's already here embedded in these opening two chapters. But we're almost at an end. We've almost got the wise men to the house. And it's been a longer journey, I think, than uh, it appears in most of the Christmas cards. Most of the Christmas cards, the wise men appear from nowhere. Uh, it doesn't take any length of time. They never seem to go to Jerusalem, or if they do, it's somewhere in the background. And all you see is the star, and uh, sometimes mistakenly they're arriving uh, in the uh, outhouse. But it's clear from what we read here in Matthew's Gospel that some time has passed since the birth of Jesus, and he and Mary and Joseph are now actually living in Bethlehem, but living in a house. There is danger surrounding these moments. And in fact, this passage that we've read is punctuated by these nighttime warnings. The warning to the wise men, the warnings that Joseph receives. Which seem to me very like Joseph's original dreams, probably to be intersecting with some of the concerns that both the wise men and Joseph and Mary now have as the whole story of how these wise men have arrived in Bethlehem to greet our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a much more amazing story, I think, than our Christmas cards ever communicate to us. And so I want us to look this afternoon at two very simple things. First of all, the way in which this passage teaches us about the sheer wonder of God's providence. And secondly, what it teaches us about the worship of God's Son. And this is the climax of the story, obviously, isn't it? The sheer wonder of God's providence. We are so accustomed to this story that almost nothing in it seems strange. 
I mean, the star no longer seems strange to us. Wise men no longer seem strange to us. Nothing about it seems strange to us. And so we need to stand back to realize actually everything about this story is strange. Stars guiding people in the Bible, that's strange. Wise men coming from the east, that's strange. Wise men amazingly being given biblical guidance out of a tyrant's mouth. That's astonishing. And wise men arriving at this little house where Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus are and falling down on their faces and worshipping a child. That too is absolutely amazing. And the whole narrative is shot through with the, the hidden hand of God, the wonder of God's providence in the way in which in this little section of Matthew chapter 2, God seems to use everything that's wrong in order to bring about what's right. And in that sense, it's, it's like a miniature version in the experience of these wise men of the big picture story in the first half of chapter 1. You remember how when we looked at chapter 1 and just dipped into the genealogy, we, we noticed the things where everything seems to go wrong, the things that ought not to be. Uh, part of Jesus' family line with, with a... a with incest in it. Part of Jesus' family line with uh, a prostitute in it. Part of Jesus' family line with adultery in it. And all of this, in all of this, not to mention some of the people that Matthew mentions in that genealogy who rebelled against God and brought disaster upon his people. It is absolutely astonishing we can understand that God fulfills his purposes through people who want to do his will. But the wonder of God's providence, and this of course is never an excuse for our disobedience, is how even our disobedience can never overthrow the providential purposes of God to bring blessing and salvation to his people. So that by wandering into the wrong city, by asking the wrong question, by Herod summoning theologians who had a disinterest in the Messiah, by the king who wanted to murder him, directing these wise men where they should go and quoting to them from the Old Testament scriptures... Everything about the picture is absolutely wrong. Except for the hidden hand of God who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. And it is absolutely amazing that this good work, remember how Paul uses that expression in Philippians 1, that God will complete the good work he has begun in you that that good work that he began all unknown to these wise men in their 
eastern country, thinking all they were doing was following a star, interpreting the signs, and no sense that what distinguished them from all their other colleagues was that God's hand was on them. And though they stumble and fall and meet all of the wrong people, and in some senses do some of the wrong things, God unerringly brings them to meet Christ. Thinking about that reminded me of a story that our uh, beloved and esteemed friend Adam uh, wrote about in a letter. Um, Many of us have heard him speak, met him, esteem him, know the kind of work in which he is engaged. And he wrote about uh, a man whose vocation in life, whose profession was forging passports. And so he would buy stolen passports, rework them, and then presumably sell them at a profit. There are apparently such people in the world. It's not just in the movies this happens. And he was given or bought one stolen passport passport with a, a photograph of a young woman in it. And he became obsessed with the photograph. And of course, because he had her passport, he became so obsessed that he, he decided he was going to try and find her. Because he had her passport, he was able to find her. And eventually, if I remember rightly, to cut a long story short, he met her, spoke to her. Eventually, unbelievably, he said he had fallen in love with her. Do you know what she said to him? Some of you all know the story. She said, no, you've not fallen in love with me. What has happened is that you've seen Jesus Christ in me and been drawn to him. Everything about that story is wrong, isn't it? You shouldn't be buying stolen passports. You shouldn't be forging stolen passports. God shouldn't use breaking the law in order to bring someone to Christ. But you see, he moves in mysterious ways as wonders to perform. Incidentally, just in case you're confused at three o'clock in the afternoon, that doesn't justify you stealing somebody's passport or forging anything, does it? But it's this amazing God we have. That's, that's what the incursion into our world of the Son of God is all about, and he's been preparing for it for centuries, for millennia. He's promised that it will happen from the beginning of human history in Genesis 3.15. As we noted this morning, that's the longest standing promise in the universe, in all human history. And the whole story of the Old Testament is about how that promise so often looked as though it had been destroyed or fallen into abeyance or that God had forgotten it. And yet all the time he was moving history on towards the coming of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. The story of the birth of Christ and the events that surround it is a story of the sheer wonder of our God and the sheer wonder of his providence. 
But it's also in this instance a marvellous story of the worship of God's Son. We can envisage them. We had an organist in our church in the United States, just a wonderful, wonderful man. He'd been organist in the church for over 40 years. He was such a delight. And one Christmas at a concert, he played this organ piece. Um, and uh, it was about the, the journey of the wise men. And at the end, very slowly, he was playing the same chord on the organ again and again and again and again, and it got agonizingly slower. I was sitting there thinking, Lord, please help him to live long enough to get to the end of this piece. And I had a discussion about this piece not being musically particularly literate with the, the, another man in the congregation who was professor of organ at the university. And I had such a sense that this was the wise men eventually getting home from their journey, absolutely exhausted. And he explained to me, no, he said, that's not what it is. It's about them eventually arriving and finding the Lord Jesus. And after all this journey, uh, all Matthew says, it's, it's quite astonishing how he does this. All Matthew says is, they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and they went into the house. Now, here's the question, and it's in, in the way Matthew does this, it's very significant. What did they see? So this scene is in many great works of art. Many great works of art. In many Christmas cards. And if it's a great work of art, it almost always has the same title, doesn't it? What they saw, what they actually saw was not what classical art has portrayed them as seeing or entitled the portrayal as seeing. seeing. These works of art are almost invariably called Madonna and Child. But you'll notice that Matthew reverses the order. They didn't seem to see Joseph at all. I think that's probably because Joseph is your, your camera here. He's, he's telling you what he saw. They saw the child with Mary, his mother. And, and you could say, well, of course, because that's what they were looking for. So it, it's kind of accidental. But Matthew makes it quite clear. It's not just this is how these words came out. Because he uses the same phraseology another four times. It's like the very, it's like the very hidden backbone of what he's saying here. He says they saw the child with his mother. And later on we're told... Verse 13, the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother. And in verse 14, he rose and took the child and his mother. And later on, in verse 21, he rose and took the child with his mother because the angel had appeared to him and said, Rise, take the child and his mother. 
So although from one point of view, through these two chapters, it's as though history has been important and Joseph has been important and an angel has been important and wise men have been important and theologians have been important and King Herod has been important. But uh, what Matthew is saying is, do you see what or who is really important here? This is, this is what, what I want you to receive from these chapters. This is, this is what I want you to have at the absolute center of your vision, at the core of your thinking about what is going on here. It is all about him. And everything else in the story, everyone else in the picture is absolutely incidental to him. And you see the wise men at this stage, they, they don't know nearly as much as Joseph and Mary. But you see, they give us such a picture of this great biblical principle that in a sense, uh, faith's strength is not drawn from how much I know. Faith's strength is drawn from knowing him, even if I know only a little about him, and yielding everything to him. And you'll notice here um, that, that Matthew seems to draw a kind of antithetical parallelism, excuse the expression, an antithetical parallelism between Herod and the wise men. Remember this morning we saw that he goes in, Matthew goes into great detail, kind of moment by moment by moment account of how Herod is responding to the news of Jesus Christ. And it's so filled with hatred and antagonism. But you see the very reverse here. And it's verb by verb by verb. They fell down. They worshipped. They they opened the containers of the treasures they had. And then, what would you have done? Do you know what I would have done? I would have turned to Mary or to Joseph and said, we brought these for your baby. But they bow down before the baby. And Matthew wants us to see this. And they offer him Gold and frankincense and myrrh. And whatever the Christmas carols and the traditions say, the very least that is clear here is they believed that these were gifts fit only for a great king. And what's so impressive at this stage is, I mean, just think about yourself in this situation. Think about yourself in a, in a, a, a social situation like this. That you, you're going to visit somebody, you don't know many of the details, but you've, 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 you've bought three gifts. And then you, you find the street they're in and you realize you, you got it wrong. You find the house they're in and you realize you got it even more wrong. And they open the door and they welcome you in. What are you thinking mentally? 
You're one of those people that thinks, I'll just give them the cheapest one. I just, there, there's no need. But you see what they do. <laughs> you, you cannot avoid feeling the power with which Matthew himself feels this, that when you encounter the Lord Jesus Christ, the only proper response to him is utterly unreserved adoration and worship because he is the son of God. He is the king. He's the Messiah. He's the redeemer. He's the savior. And then I love it that Matthew adds this little note in verse 12 that after they'd offered the gifts, being warned in a dream. Now, I want you to notice what that means. It means they went to bed. That's what it means. It means that they stayed overnight. And yes, of course, we don't know what happened, but you cannot but believe that one of the things that Matthew is bringing out here is they didn't just leave their gifts at the baby's feet and walk out the door. There were things going on in their mind trying to understand the experience and I personally cannot but believe conversations. These are human beings after all. Three wise men from a thousand miles away turn up at your door, you welcome them into the house, you give them a cup of tea, they shower gifts upon you. You just shake their hands and say, well, it's been nice knowing you. You say, how on earth did you come here? How did you know? How did you know? We've come to see the king. And these two are almost the only ones on earth who know he's the king. So of course they talked. And maybe these wise men talked about the little they knew of scripture and what they discovered. He, 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 the Herod said to us, there's some ancient prophecy from some prophet called Micah that says the, the king would be born in Bethlehem. That's why we came here. There's wonder in the, in the sky. We made our mistakes, but here we are. But tell us about yourself. And I think if you put the chronology together, you find some very interesting things because it's, it's, it, 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 it's, it's fairly clear to me that something has happened since the birth of Jesus. So what's happened since the birth of Jesus? Well, Luke tells us on the eighth day, he was circumcised. A few weeks after that, they went to Jerusalem, part of the old covenant ritual of the cleansing, the purification of Mary. And there you remember in Jerusalem, they had been met by two elderly saints, Simeon and Anna. And Simeon had spoken about the fact that this child was for the rising and falling of many in Israel. And he had said to Mary these amazing words. And he said, a sword is going to pierce through your soul too. And then Anna had appeared, this very elderly widow, most of her life a widow, 
the very woman to comfort this young girl who'd just been told about a sword piercing her own soul. And, 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 and they're putting together things like what Mary had understood when she praised God in the Magnificat, what her cousin Elizabeth had recognized. And if you, if you look at those passages, not least the Magnificat, you know if Mary didn't have a Bible, it's almost as though she didn't need a Bible. It was in her memory. It was in her heart. She obviously was a young woman who was just full of Bible thinking. And who knows what they talk about? Did they tell them about Genesis 3.15? Did they tell them about Genesis 12.1? Did they tell them about Isaiah 53 and the sword? Did they tell them about how all through the centuries they had remembered the promise that God had given to Abraham that he had passed on to his son? God himself will provide a lamb for the sacrifice. And did they say, you know, that that's where Jerusalem is built? We don't understand it. It's such a, it, it's, it is in the truest sense, I think we can say this since magi is the word from which we get magical. It is the truest magic in all history. And at the same time, there, are, there is impending doom. And they must have spoken about that. Who did you, you saw Herod? That would be like one of us saying to somebody, you met Hitler. You met Hitler. You talked with him. He told you to come here. And so there is danger. They're warned in the dream. You know, there's a commentary on this in the Bible, don't you? In Revelation chapter 12 about the woman who gives birth and about how the ancient serpent, the devil, pursues it and seeks to destroy it. But God protects the child who will rule the nations. And then this, the serpent, now grown into a dragon, pursues the people of God. And they are protected by their heavenly Father. And that's about to break out and so they go to Egypt. Um, it's not so far away, actually, from where they were. You know, you get there in a week or so. I mean, oh, you can get there in a few hours from here. But it seems a long way to us, and it must have seemed a long way to them, especially when you know there was a price on your head. And then Matthew gives this hint to us that what we are about to see in the rest of the gospel is the beginning of a new exodus. Not now an exodus from uh, Egypt and the bondage of Pharaoh, but an exodus from the bondage of sin and Satan and death that Jesus will accomplish through his life and death and resurrection and ascension and gift of the Holy Spirit. And then eventually, as we're told in verse 19, when Herod died, 
The angel appears again in a dream to Joseph because he's wondering, Lord, when are we going to get out of here? When are we going to get home? When are the travel restrictions going to be lifted? And he hears that Archelaus is reigning over Judea, and so he withdraws to the district of Galilee and goes to live in a city called Nazareth. And here comes the fifth of the fulfilled prophecies in these two chapters, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. If you're a Bible student, that's one of the most puzzling statements in the New Testament, isn't it? For the simple reason, it doesn't appear in the Old Testament. (laughs) There ain't no Old Testament passage that says he'll be called a Nazarene. And so there are scholars who think that there's a very attractive play on words here. Uh, the, the, The Hebrew word for branch, which is a way the Messiah is described in the Old Testament, Isaiah 11 verse 1, for example, is netzer. And there are scholars who think there's a kind of play on words going on. He's a netzerine. He's, he is the branch. What gives me hesitation about that is that Matthew says that the prophets, plural, said this. And my own suspicion is that what he's saying is that when you, when you look at the prophets as a whole, and the way they point to the Lord Jesus Christ, and yes, particularly the prophecy of Isaiah. What do you see? You know, I was brought up in the east end of Glasgow in the early 1950s. I still remember the responses people made to me when they said, you know, as a young teenager out of town, doing something, playing in a golf tournament, whatever. Where'd you come from? Glasgow. And there was this kind of look down the nosishness because I didn't come from um, Kelvin said, but from the East End. And in fact, Dorothy, my wife, when she was a, 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 a girl in high school in another city altogether that will remain nameless to protect the guilty, was warned by one of her teachers, avoid boys from Glasgow. Because it was the alcohol capital of Europe. My mum would never let me go to a Rangers and football, Rangers and Celtic football match in case I got my head caved in. It was, it was a city of violence and full of slums. You come from Glasgow. And it was lower than saying you come from Dundee, you know, or Kirkcaldy or wherever. You come from Glasgow. It was was a stigma outside of the city. And Nazareth was the same. No good thing comes out of Nazareth. And I think that's what Matthew is picking up. That this one who has been born, who has been loved, who has been worshipped, who has been protected, who is now being brought back to the land in which he will die for our sins. 
is one who comes so far down that he will be despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Men will hide their faces from him. He was despised, says Isaiah, and we esteemed him not. Why is that? It's because, as uh, Mrs. Alexander's hymn, Once in Royal David City, has taught children for generations, tears and smiles like us he knew. And he feeleth for our sadness, and he shareth in our gladness. That's who he is. That's how wonderful he is. And you notice if you go back through this passage that uh, there are three points at which he's given a name. Emmanuel, because only God with us can help us. Jesus, because he's come to save us. And the Nazarene, because he's come to the least and the lowest to lift us up to glory. What do you listen to at Christmas time? I mean, most of us have got a little favorite piece of music. There's one piece of music I always listen to at Christmas time. I'm not classically trained in anything except classics. I don't know much about music as such. But every Christmas I listen to a part of Bach's Christmas Oratorio. And I listen to it for one reason, and it's a reason that some of the highbrow music critics rather despise because they're musicologists and not theologians. And Bach was a theologian as well as a great composer and musician. He signed his pieces, S-D-G, Solo Dei Gloria, to the glory of God alone. And in his Christmas, in the first part of his Christmas oratorio, he does something that I think must have, it, it must have, stunned the congregation that he served musically because he has this very well-known hymn Ah Lord, how shall I meet thee? How welcome thee aright All nations long to greet thee My hope, my soul, delight Brighten the lamp that burneth but dimly in my breast and teach my soul that yearneth to honour such a high guest and it's a welcoming to the newborn child. But Bach sets it to a tune that the congregation would never have sung the hymn to. And the tune to which he sets it just slowly steals upon you. It's the tune that they were familiar with to another hymn by Paul Gerhardt that we know much better. It's the tune to, O sacred head, sore wounded, with grief and shame weighed down, now scornfully surrounded with thorns thine only crown. O sacred head, what glory, what bliss till now was thine. 
Yet, though despised and gory, I joy to call thee mine. And you see what he's saying? It's saying that the one we welcome would be despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And that's why we welcome him. That's why we welcome him. Oh, dear friends, welcome him. Welcome him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, how can you have given to the likes of us, the likes of him, and how can you in the wonder of your providence have drawn us to yourself, we who have rebelled against you and broken your law and despised your name and your will, and yet you have sent your Son for us, and we worship you, we adore you, and we pray as you set him before us in your word that, like these wise men, whatever reservations we may have had in our hearts, that they will melt away before the wonder of his grace. Whatever we may have kept back from giving to him, we will bring the treasures of our being this day to him. So that in these days of so much Difficulty for so many people in our country and so much desperate need, our lives may speak wonderfully of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that one who has done so much for us will have everything that we can possibly give to him. And we pray this in his name.